Hey, let's read from Mark chapter 9, verse 2 to 13. Follow along on your screen um, or on your Bible app. It's page 1011 if you have one of the blue Bibles from the front. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than any one in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Okay, well, good morning, formally, everyone. It's uh, great to be here. And if you've got your Bibles open at Mark chapter 9, still please do that. Is there anyone here who's um, been to um, the Grand Canyon in the US? Just a couple, that's good. Um, It's an awesome experience, if you've uh, ever been. Meredith and I saw it uh, a few years ago, or many years ago, when I was doing some of that postgraduate study I talked about. Um, we went in winter, and uh, it had been snowing for a few days before we got there, and as we drove in uh, to the accommodation park, which is right alongside it, uh, the snow was still sitting in the, in the trees. It was quite something um, to behold, because it was just gone a few hours later. Uh, you don't see the canyon itself, really, until you're virtually at its edge. In fact, you could be forgiven if it was not so clearly signposted uh, for not even knowing it was there, um, driving past. But it's an incredibly awesome sight, 446 kilometres long, 29 kilometres wide and almost two kilometres deep. And though you're standing on flat ground because of its great depth and breadth, it feels like you really are on a mountain top um, looking out over a magnificent panorama. One comes away from that thinking how awesome God himself must be as creator of such a sight. Yet, when all's said and done, it really is only a glimpse. Just for a short time, the glory of God is created. Two days later, we left Uh, back to the humdrum of busy California study and everything that was going on. And in a a way, you soon forget the awesomeness with which uh, you saw things. 
The passage we look at today, I think, describes one of the Bible's own mountaintop experiences. In this case, uh, the three disciples, Jesus, Peter, James and John. Now, in the Bible, mountaintop experiences are not just an experience of God's creation, but a revelation in some way of God himself and his character and glory. So too here, but it's in a very unexpected way for the three disciples. It too, however, is just a glimpse. It lasted only a moment for them, but a very significant moment nevertheless. Not this time of God's own glory, but what I've called a glimpse of the Messiah's glory. The time reference with which the section begins in verse 2, it says, after six days, very unusual in Mark, he hardly ever um, is that specific about time, ties this event very closely to what has happened in chapter 8 just before, particularly to Peter's declaration of Jesus' Messiah. You might remember from last week in chapter 8, verses 27 to 29, Jesus asked the disciples who people said he was, Um, Some said John the Baptist, some Elijah or one of the prophets and when Jesus asked Peter the same question he said, you are the Messiah. But from then on things went very awry. Jesus told his disciples about his death. He spoke plainly. We might say he used the plain English version. (laughs) Peter was so shocked by the idea of such an outcome for the Messiah that he rebuked Jesus, who then told him that he was on the side of Satan. From declaring Jesus to be the Messiah to being on the side of Satan. In just a few verses. It was quite a fall. It must have been incredibly troubling, I think, and disturbing for Peter. So, after six days, Jesus took them up to a high mountain uh, where God would reveal a glimpse of the incredible glory of the Messiah. And I've split this glory into three aspects. First, we see the glory of Jesus' person. In uh, verses 2 to (coughs) 4, we read this. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him, led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could beach them. And there appeared before him Moses and Elijah who were talking with Jesus. If that was not enough, we just read a little bit further in verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. We'll come back to the significance of Moses and Elijah in a minute. But for the moment I want to concentrate, focus on Jesus himself. Note, however, that great as Moses and Elijah might have been, only Jesus is transfigured here. Only he is transformed. And in terms that are hard to describe, the writer is obviously struggling to describe exactly what was seen with the words. 
you know, whiter than anyone else could bleach them. You can't think of anything else to describe the dazzling whiteness that is transformed. We're not exactly sure what it means to be transfigured. I think this is the only time the word's used in the whole Bible. But obviously some form of transformation that was just incredible. But one thing we do know from elsewhere in the Bible is that this sort of dazzling white is the way God himself appears in the Old Testament. So, for example, in a vision of God given to Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, we read, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and his wheels were all ablaze. This dazzling white transformation was an indicator of Jesus' divinity alongside his humanity. And that divinity is confirmed then, isn't it, in verse 7, with the appearance of the cloud descending upon the mountain and the voice uh, proclaiming, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Sorry, I've gone too far there. Um, The glory of Jesus' person you see, is that he's not just a man like Moses and Elijah, even a great man, even a powerful man. Indeed, as we've already seen, Jesus had demonstrated all those things anyway that they had seen. He is much more. He is the divine Son of God. And this declaration of Jesus' sonship, of course, is only a repeat um, if you went back to chapter 1, verse uh, 11 um, in Mark, in Jesus' baptism, these are exactly the same words that were said when a voice came from heaven and a dove came upon him at his baptism. Jesus is the Messiah, but one who is so much greater than ever Peter, James and John could have imagined. The disciples are so frightened they're out of their wits, which such a, such a space. So Peter, he didn't know what else to do, but he suggested they make three shelters for Moses, Elijah and Jesus. And why he made such a suggestion, we can only guess out of his own confusion. Maybe it was for some sort of veneration. He thought the three of them ought to be venerated in some way. But even if that was so, he still shows, it still does not identify the stark difference between the way Jesus is displayed and Moses and Elijah and probably still reflects that he's only thinking from a human perspective. Jesus was far greater than the two figures regarded as the greatest in Jewish history, Moses and Elijah. He was divine. He was God's own Son. The Messiah was far and away beyond anything Peter could have imagined and that included the nature of the Messiah's mission. For I don't think the presence of Moses and Elijah is either random or incidental, you know, just plucking two figures out of history or that sort of thing. No, 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 no. This is definitely intentional. Their presence with Jesus indicates the second aspect, I think, of the glory of Messiah That is the glory of Jesus' mission. You see, Moses and Elijah are the two great figures that sum up Jewish religious history. Moses is the founder of Israel. 
the one whom God gave the law on the mountaintop of Mount Sinai. If you read it, there's great glory and cloud and um, glowing and all sorts of things going on there. Elijah was regarded as the greatest of the prophets. First of all, because also on a mountain, Mount Carmel, God emphatically demonstrated his power over the prophets of Baal. You can read about that in 1 Kings 18. And secondly, because Elijah didn't die, as the rest of us and everybody else did. But he was taken up directly to heaven by God. See 2 Kings 2. You see. So he, that was his, in Jewish history, one of his uh, most prominent things of why he was considered great. But there's more to the figure of Elijah here. Um, After the disciples and Jesus came down from the mountain, we read this funny sort of conversation. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restore all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. You see, Elijah was also considered in Jewish history as an end times figure. Someone who would appear before the end of the present world to prepare the people for the coming of God's kingdom. This expectation may have been based on the last words of the Old Testament in Malachi 4, 5 and 6, which read like this. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. This is what seems to be behind Peter's question um, and the teachers of the law, what they said. Jesus' reply, however, indicates that the notion of this Elijah figure was fulfilled by John the Baptist. In fact, Matthew states that if you go to his account of this. That is, the forerunner of the Messiah whom we had already seen, was beheaded by Herod. And elsewhere, in Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus says, there's been no one born of women who is greater than John the Baptist, the Elijah figure. So the presence of Moses and Elijah here are more than two just just the greatest figures in Jewish, Jewish history, I think. Rather, as one writer puts it, Moses and Elijah sort of frame the whole covenant history of Israel. All the hopes of salvation that we find there and the coming of the kingdom of God that the Messiah would bring. The glory of Jesus' person in the midst of these two figures then indicates the far greater glory of his mission, the bringing about of salvation for the whole world. Jesus would bring, about Israel, would bring about what Israel had failed to do. You see, the scope of God's plan, in case you didn't realise, was always universal. Israel was always meant to be a light to the Gentiles, to bring them in to God. 
But the Jews, Israel itself, had walked away from God. And of course the present Jewish leadership rejected Jesus as the true Messiah anyway. But as the divine Son of God, Jesus would complete the Old Testament prophetic vision for a universal salvation that would come to anyone from any tribal nation that would follow him. What Peter, James and John still did not realise, however, is that such a glorious salvation could only come through a process of great suffering for the Messiah. That is why in the conversation we just read with Elijah in 11 to 13, Jesus asked the disciples in verse 12, why is it written the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? The path to the glorious coming of the kingdom would only take place through I've got that wrong. There, through Jesus' death and resurrection. I think that's why Jesus commands Peter, James and John not to tell anyone in verse 9 of what they'd seen on the hill. You can imagine they must have been ready to really... Imagine if you'd seen that. You could hardly hold it in. Would you when you get down? And Jesus says, don't tell anyone. But don't tell anyone until I've risen from the dead. The crucifixion can only ever be understood in the light of the resurrection. Otherwise it's just a tragic death for a good man. It's only ever understood in the light of the resurrection. The glory of the Messiah's mission, you see, rests on the truth of the resurrection. Only then can Jesus' words coming up in Matthew in Mark 10.45, be truly understood, which I've got out of order here. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We, of course, know now what that means, don't we, through the preaching of the apostles at Jesus' commission, now written down for us in the New Testament. Jesus' death was a substitutionary death. His suffering on the cross covering the sin and rebellion of anyone who had turned to him and followed him. You know, if you're still thinking about who Jesus is, wondering about it, what to do about it, and the significance of what he's done, this is the glory of his mission. To offer a universal salvation that we can receive simply by turning to him asking for his forgiveness and seeking to follow him. It's marvellous. And for those of us here who have done that, then there is one more factor to the glory of the Messiah, I think, in this passage. Not so much stated explicitly as I think implied within the narrative, especially when taken with chapter 8. The transfiguration event is connected closely to the declaration of Jesus as Messiah in chapter 8 because the glory of the Messiah will in the end be a shared glory. It will be the glory that awaits Jesus' disciples. In the last verse of chapter 8, Jesus says, 
If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he come in his Father's glory with the holy angels. See, though Jesus had told the disciples of his impending suffering and death, this this verse clearly indicates the future glory of Jesus which would follow, not only for him, but for all those who follow him. Jesus' declaration that the way Peter had thought about the Messiah was on the side of Satan could have driven him to despair, let alone the words at the end of chapter 8 that the disciples must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus. So this little glimpse of the true majesty of Jesus serves, I think, as a great assurance and a great encouragement that his disciples will indeed share his glory when the Son of Man comes again with his holy angels. And I think there are two characteristics of Jesus' disciples, amongst many of course, that are hinted at in this transfiguration event. Jesus' true disciples are, first of all, those who listen to him. When God speaks from the cloud in verse 7, he not only affirms the divine sonship of Jesus, he calls the disciples to listen to Jesus. Given the very unexpected news that Jesus had just given in chapter 8, this call is important. The disciples did not understand as yet how Jesus' Messiahship would work out. The call is nevertheless to listen to him, to trust his word, sometimes even when all seems lost, as of course it must have done when Jesus was crucified. And is that not still true for us today, brothers and sisters? We live in a broken world marred, messed up by human sin and the world is in rebellion to God and in rebellion to us. Sometimes sometimes things still happen which make you wonder what God is doing. Why did he let that happen? We don't understand always. But the call is the same, to listen to him. because he is the divine son who will complete all that God has planned. And how do we do that? Well, of course, today it's by reading and listening to the scriptures, for they have been left behind by Jesus through the ministry of his apostles. Sunday by Sunday, as we hear the word of God preached, in smaller home groups, as our circumstances allow, but also personally through a regular reading of the Bible in our daily walk. You know, there are so many voices calling for our attention in our world today. We need to make sure that we give time to listen to Jesus. And as we listen... We also pray that the Spirit of God might continually give us strength to put them into practice. So disciples then are first of all those who listen to Jesus but they are also those, I think, who bear witness to him. 
You see, when Jesus tell, tells the disciples they're coming down the mountain in verse 9 not to tell anyone, there's a limit, isn't there? There's a limit to that silence until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Then they can tell anybody they like. Then Peter, James and John could bear witness to that incredible glory that which they got a glimpse of who he really was, who Jesus really was and is the divine Son of God. And at least the witness of Peter after the resurrection, in fact, has been written down for us. Because in Peter's second letter, in 2 Peter 1, 16-18, he tells us about it. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So too with us bearing witness to Jesus. Though not in exactly the same way, of course. We are not the eyewitnesses, as Peter, James and John were of a glimpse of the Messiah's glory. In a sense, we bear witness to their witness. Disciples are not those ashamed of Jesus and his words, but those who are, to quote Peter again, in 1 Peter 3.15, who set apart Jesus as Lord and are always prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that you have. That is our responsibility, friends, to bear witness to Jesus today. And I think it's incredibly, incredibly appropriate that it's put like this for our day. You know, for ever since, um, you know, the rise of uh, movements that no longer claim absolute truth as possible. It's been around for a while now. There is no absolute truth. Rather, what you get is, it's my truth that matters. But paradoxically, that has opened the way to share how much the Lord Jesus has changed our lives. Another way, if you like, of explaining the hope that is within us. Testimony of a life change that people also see in the way we act and behave is a very powerful witness today to the truth about Jesus, who he is and his glory. So we need to pray for one another that we might be bold to bear witness to Jesus' glory and the hope we have in sharing that glory as we have opportunity. Well, let me come back by way of conclusion to the overall function I think this passage serves in the lives of Peter, James and John and ultimately for all followers of Jesus. You know, the disciples had been told by Jesus what lay ahead for him and for his followers. It was going to be tough suffering 
and self-denial lay ahead. The same has been true, I think, for Jesus' disciples ever since. In a broken and sometimes hostile world, being a disciple of Jesus will sometimes be tough and hard. Not only because we're not exempt from the disease and trauma and untimely death that a broken world often brings, but because of the hostility that often comes with those who profess Christian faith, something that's increasing more and more in our part of the world. But this mountaintop event of Jesus' transfigurations here provided for us to encourage us with a wonderful glimpse of Jesus the Messiah's glory. Glory as divine son, glory as saviour of the world, glory as the one who will glorify his disciples when he comes again in glory with his holy angels. Friends, let us then not get distracted by the many voices that want to call for our attention today but continue the important task of giving time to listening to Jesus and looking for opportunities to bear witness to his marvellous glory. Let's pray, shall we? Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you um, for this passage today. We thank you for the wonder of Jesus, the wonder of He's coming into our world both as a human being and yet as your divine son. We thank you for this revelation which has changed our lives so much. And we thank you for the encouragement it is to know that Jesus truly is the divine son of God and that what awaits us is for us to see him face to face and to share in that wonderful glory. In the meantime, Heavenly Father, help us to continue to listen to him and to bear witness to how he has totally changed our lives. And we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen.